Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Church in Brighton on Sunday, the 21st of June 2020. You're very welcome this evening as you join with us online. We hope you'll be blessed as we come together as best as we can as Christian people to worship the Lord Jesus together and to hear his word being spoken to us. Tonight we'll be doing what we usually do when we meet together. We'll be singing some songs about our faith as Christians about the Lord Jesus, praising him together, worshipping him, and also reading the word of God, the Bible, and, and talking about it and trying to understand what God is saying to us through his word, and also praying to the Lord and coming before him and talking to him about the things in our lives and the things that matter to us. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight chosen a song tonight, which the words will be on the screen, which talks about the Lord Jesus. There's a book in the Bible which refers to Jesus as the Word of God the Father. He is God's Word to this world. And this song talks about uh, his majesty, it talks about his glory, it talks about his message of love, his gospel, his good news going out to the four corners of the world. And tonight... In our, in our talk later, we'll be, we'll be thinking about the good news, the gospel going out to all the nations of the world. So let's sing this song, which is called Across the Lands.
Now let's talk to God, let's pray together. I'll lead you in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together. Lord, although we cannot actually meet physically tonight, we can, in some sense, gather together around your word as your people. And we do pray, Lord, although this is not ideal and it's not what we want, we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time and help us to make best use of it, help us to benefit from it. Father, this world is full of care. This world is full of turmoil. It's full of trouble. It's full of anxiety for some, for many. But we as your people know that we need to hear your word. We need to quieten ourselves before you. And we need to listen to what you have to say to us. We we pray, Father, that you would give us grace, give us strength and encouragement. Because these are difficult days and strange days and we often get discouraged and weary. But we look to you to supply our needs, to help us. And tonight we pray that this online service would be of benefit to those that listen. Thank you, Father, that the the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus, the word of God, is even now going out unhindered to the four corners of this earth. Men and women are taking this message to places where people do not know you and do not know your son, the Lord Jesus. And even in this city of Brighton and Hove, people are hearing the gospel. They're hearing the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, that he can save sinners, that he can take away our guilt before you and reconcile us to you. And we thank you so much for that good news that we do not have to live in fear of condemnation. But Lord, if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, believe in his finished work on the cross, that he died in our place to save us, we can also be forgiven and we can have hope of a resurrection of eternal life and not of judgment. Pray, Father, for anyone tonight who is listening to this, who is not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, who may have been rejecting him for years and years or perhaps just doesn't even know what this is all about. I pray that you would speak to them. Give them understanding and knowledge that they might understand that they are, like all the rest of us, deeply in need of forgiveness and of being saved by Jesus. Your word says he's the only one that can save. He's the only one that can bring us to you. No other method will work, but only faith in the Lord Jesus. So Father, we pray that you would Do that work and bring many people to salvation. Lord, in these days, we we look at the turmoil in this world and we we fear sometimes what's going on. We pray, Lord, you would help those, Lord, who are trying to bring peace. We particularly pray for our leaders, that they would have wisdom to lead this country in a way which is honourable, and which works for the best interests of the majority of the people living here. We pray, Lord, that you would help them, because it's not an easy task. We pray, Father, that you would bless those in our church community, Lord, who are needy and struggling, and those that we care about, Lord, who are in that category. We pray that you would bless them and be gracious to them, Lord, and we pray that you would 
help them to persevere in this Christian life and not to turn to the right or to the left, but to keep on going, to keep on looking to you for grace and mercy in their time of need. We look to you, Father, please help us. We pray, Father, as we come to your word soon, that you would speak to us. These are difficult passages, and many great men have pondered these things, and, and women as well, of course. They've pondered and wondered, what does this mean? What's this saying to us? Lord, help us in this short time tonight to to gain something useful. So Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Got another song now, which is Abba, Father. Abba has nothing to do with the band Abba. Abba is a word that was used at the time of Jesus in the language which Jesus spoke to refer to one's father. It was a term that meant father. So when we say Abba Father, we mean father, father. This song talks about the relationship a Christian has with God. It's a beautiful song, a simple song. It's a desire, a prayer that God would not let our hearts grow cold, that God would not let us go. I've asked my kids to sing along on this as well. But isn't it a beautiful thing to have a father in God And that's what we have. So please join me in singing the song, Abba Father. The words will be on the screen. Now we come to read the word of God and tonight we'll be continuing our series in the gospel of Matthew. We've got as far as chapter 24, very famous, well-known chapter. Tonight we'll be reading from verses 1 to 35, Matthew 24, 1 to 35. If you want to open your Bible, you can follow 
follow it as I read it. So let me read to you. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars. But see to it, you are not alarmed. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains or of the pangs. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith will be offended and will betray and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many or most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, The end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress or tribulation. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. And never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, Do not go go out or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever, Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. 
The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations on the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that it is summer. Sorry, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, says Jesus, will never pass away. Let's pray one more time. Father God, as we come now to your word, we pray once again that you would help, help me and help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to understand as much as we can understand. Help us to understand it and to take heed, to, to, to pay attention and to act upon what you've said to us. Amen. So we come to what many consider to be one of the most difficult passages, chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. I always seem to get these difficult ones, but it's a pleasure actually. And I've enjoyed getting into the word and trying to understand as best as possible what these passages are saying to us. The details of these words that Jesus spoke in this so-called Olivet Discourse, it was called that because he was sitting on the Mount of Olives when he said this, had been debated by many, many learned and clever people, Christians, throughout the ages. And I guarantee that until these things actually take place, until the Lord Jesus comes again, people will still be debating and discussing the details. It can be difficult to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. But I'm convinced that the word of God is not some kind of mystery puzzle that only the elite few intelligent people can understand. I believe in a plain, simple understanding of the Bible. You can pick up the Bible, you can read it, and often the plain meaning of it is apparent, it's obvious just by reading it. You don't have to be brain of Britain to understand what the Bible is saying. And I want to to try to unpack the word of God in a kind of unprejudiced way, not looking through some kind of prism or some theological lens and being constrained by that, but coming to the word, simply asking the Lord to help us to understand it as best we can and to teach it in a way that the man on the Portslade omnibus could understand. That's my goal, to bring the word of God to us in a way that we can all appreciate it and benefit from it without overcomplicating it, without getting hung up on details, without trying to read cryptic things into it. Having said that, the word of God does take work, it does take study, and it's important that we do understand 
the, the genre of the literature and we do understand the context and some of the references and we let scripture interpret scripture. That's very important. We let the Bible interpret itself. We go through the scriptures and we, we use it to help us in our study. Dear friends, the Church of Jesus Christ, I believe, has a prophetic ministry in these days. When I say prophetic, I don't mean foretelling the future in some kind of supernatural way, having these revelations. I'm talking about the Church of God declaring the word of the Lord, opening the Bible and proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the coming of the King and making straight paths for him, making a way preparing people for the coming of the Lord. It's not always what people want to hear. People are quite comfortable in their lives, comfortable with their idols. But it is important that we declare the coming king and the coming of the kingdom. For the Christian, the coming of the Lord Jesus is not something to be dreaded or something to be avoided, something we never talk about. But it's the blessed hope as Paul calls it, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul in Titus 2. The blessed hope. That's what the coming of Christ is for the Christian person. So let's turn our attention to this chapter, the first part of this chapter, Matthew 24. If you wish, you can read the parallel accounts of this in Mark chapter 13 and Luke 21. And it's worth reading them because although they say basically the same thing, they put it in a slightly different way. They paraphrase certain things that Jesus said and they give us a full picture of what he said on on the Mount of Olives on this occasion. They differ in, in some minor details. Mark seems to include more warnings in his version of it. And Luke seems to include more encouragements to Christians in his version of it. It's a few days before Jesus will die for the sins of his people in Jerusalem. Just before this, he's been denouncing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And as you you remember, last week we read about when he said, your house is left to you desolate. Talking about the destruction of, of Jerusalem that was to happen 40 years later, and particularly the Jewish temple. Your house is left to you abandoned. Your house is left to you desolate. When we pick up the story today, the disciples, not not really in keeping with the solemn tone of what the Lord has just been been speaking about, talking about destruction and and the, the hypocrisy of the leaders and the people in their rejection of God. The disciples, one day, they're walking out of the temple And they they call Jesus' attention to these beautiful buildings, these amazing and beautiful ornate structures that form the temple complex. He said, Jesus, look, isn't it amazing? What massive stones, what beautiful gifts. And they really were massive stones. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us they were some 40 foot long. We, we, fail to understand sometimes how vast the temple complex was, how ornate it was, you know, inlaid with gold and marble. 
it still wasn't complete at the time of Jesus. It was still being built. It was a massive, massive structure. And we forget also that the temple was the heart of the Jewish religion and the Jewish nation, absolutely beloved by the Jews. It was the absolute focal point of their worship. It was seen as God's, the place of God's presence on earth, the place of sacrifices, the place of priesthood. It was a sign of God's blessing and presence with them. And the disciples, like many a tourist, are impressed by the scale of these beautiful buildings. Had they not heard what Jesus was talking about, had they not understood when he talked about the desolation of God's house, the house of Israel. And Jesus says something to them very shocking. We read it here, don't we? He says, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So Jesus says a shocking thing to them. You see these beautiful stones? You see these massive buildings? It will all be completely destroyed, utterly wasted. Now, the disciples presumably are a bit shocked by this. They go away. And later, they pluck up the courage to come to Jesus. They ask him some questions. Actually, two questions. You can see them here in verse 3. Tell us. When will this happen? Talking about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Have you noticed that Jesus doesn't say to them, don't worry about this, it's not for you to know about, it's not for you to understand, there won't be any signs. In fact, Jesus gives them a long and detailed answer to their questions. I think it may be the longest recorded answer that Jesus gives to any question his disciples or anybody else ask him. In Mark's account of this, particularly, you can read that the tone of what Jesus is talking about, he peppers it with warnings and injunctions. He says, watch out, be on your guard, take care, be alert, keep watch, time and time again, in this discourse. And then, as we'll come on to in following weeks, Jesus emphasizes the point of this by ramming home the necessity, the importance of being ready for his return by a series of parables, stories which illustrate the importance of being ready when he comes, of being faithful, of keeping watch, of being alert, of not being sleepy in a spiritual sense great big chunk of scripture of teaching and I can only conclude that Jesus rather than wanting his people not to think about this to avoid thinking about this wants his people to think about this he wants them to focus on this it's not the only thing they focus on but it's important it underpins the Christian life the the life of discipleship this sense of readiness this sense of alertness this sense of being faithful the sense of watching and being on guard So let's, let's look at these passages and let's look at some of the, the things that Jesus talks about as being signs of his coming. The first thing, well, let's look at verses 4 to 14. This appears to be Jesus answering the question about his coming rather than the fall of Jerusalem 
in particular. I, I say this because the global scope of these things seems to exceed anything that you could see preceding AD 70 when these things took place. And then in verse 14, Jesus concludes it by saying, and then the end will come. He seems to be talking about his parousia, his, his coming, his presence, when he comes pr- to be present in this world again, physically present. So this section, as I said, is talking about, I think, talking primarily about his coming and the signs which will lead up to his coming in the period of the last days. The very first thing that Jesus talks about is deception. He says, doesn't he, in verse 4, watch out, take heed, be careful that no one deceives you. He warns them, not for the first time, of false Christs in verse 4. People coming saying, I am the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah. And also false prophets in verse 11. He says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And then in verse 24, he also says that as well. False Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. These false prophets, these false Christs, have the ability to deceive people. And not just a few people, but many people. I find it rather shocking, in verse 24, that these these charlatans, these deceivers, even have the ability to perform false miracles, false signs, to deceive even the elect. The elect is a term which means God's chosen people, the people that belong to God. And Jesus uses that term a few times in this discourse. I take verse 24 to mean this, that although it's not possible for the elect, for God's chosen people to be fully deceived, it can be pretty close at times. God's people can come to the very edge of deception. If they're truly his, they will not completely be deceived. and They will draw back from the brink and come back to their senses. Some Christians do seem to have a fixation with the supernatural in the life of the Christian church. They seem to have a, a craving to see signs and wonders and miracles. I've met Christians who seem to run around, chase around after the latest anointed man of God. They'll go anywhere. They hear, you know, Wembley Stadium, so-and-so's appearing there. They rush off there to go and hear somebody. Or they go somewhere else and they they talk about these great men with this, this powerful anointing who can do these miracles. But I think that's a very foolish and dangerous thing to chase after miracle men and miracles and signs and wonders as the kind of primary focus of your Christian faith. There's, if, you're, if you're that kind of person, if you're that kind of Christian, you don't know the word of God very well, you don't have much discernment, but you're easily seduced and taken in by anything that seems to be from God. You need to be very careful because you may well be deceived if you don't ground yourself in the word of God and exercise biblical discernment 
and test the spirits. False Christs, false messiahs, false saviours have always been part of the scene. How much more in the last days? Some people, many people are willing to surrender anything in order to be saved by someone who promises them salvation, promises, promises them a solution to their problems, a way out of the mess they find themselves in. We, we've seen over the years political messiahs, somebody who comes claiming to be the great saviour of his people, of his nation. In all kinds of dictators and regimes where men have risen up and offered political salvation to people. and People have followed them very blindly in some cases. We see financial messiahs, financial saviors, men who come, who offer people a fix, who offer them some kind of solution to the financial mess they find themselves in. And of course, because the unbelieving world loves money, idolizes mammon, these people will chase after these messiahs. And you also see spiritual, religious messiahs, false Christs, people who claim to have the way of salvation, people who claim to speak for God, false prophets, people who claim to have revelations, people who form false religions and cults. They have this almost religious um, hold over people. People are willing to sacrifice themselves because these, these, these deceivers have so much hold over them. And there may be a time in the world coming where people say, you know, we don't care what we have to do. We don't care what you make us do. Get us out of this mess that we're in. There's so much chaos in the world. We just want to go back to our quiet and easy lives. And they may well look for a saviour, a messiah, but not the true Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jesus says there will be false Christs, false messiahs. Be on your guard. Do not be deceived by them. Where will this deception lead? Well, this is shaky ground because many Christians have different opinions and views about the exact meaning of these verses. But if you were to go to Revelation 13, you would read um, this revelation that John the Apostle had using very symbolic imagery, but talking about great and fearful events in human history. And in Revelation 13, we appear to read about a final global universal deception when a so-called beast out of the earth performs great and miraculous signs. And he even causes, this beast even causes fire to come down from heaven, which was a sign in the Old Testament, something that only God could do. So he mimics God, he pretends to be God, to have the power of God. So this beast has enormous power to deceive people, to perform miracles. All the inhabitants of the earth. There's also a beast out of the sea in that same chapter, a proud and blasphemous creature or power who persecutes Christians ruthlessly. Is worshipped by all the inhabitants of the earth except those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, of course, I cannot stand here today and tell you exactly what these verses are referring to. But it's not difficult to see, is it? In the world we live in where there is so much chaos, 
and a sense of gathering darkness and turmoil and and tension in the world. You could see how with so much fear around that such a situation could develop where somebody comes, a deceiver, offering people salvation from their problems and many will be deceived and follow after him. But we as Christians, we don't need to be anxious about this. We don't need to be fearful or, or despondent because the Lord has warned us, the Lord has encouraged us not to be defeated by these things. But we need to be watchful, discerning and prayerful, not get carried away, be sensible, but at the same time, just be aware of deception. Coming back to this chapter, Jesus makes it clear that Christians should never be deceived by some kind of report that says that the Lord has already come and is hiding somewhere in some secret place out in the desert or perhaps in some room in the, in the beleaguered city. He says that, doesn't he, in verse 23. People will say, look, here is the Christ, there is the Christ. Or he's out in the desert somewhere in verse 27, sorry, verse 26. Jesus says, don't pay any attention to that because the Lord, when he comes, everybody will know about this. This will be universally visible. He will not come in some secret and hidden way. Very sadly, there have been people who've been taken in by people who've claimed to be the Lord Jesus returned to the world. and They've gone off in these cults and very tragic and sad deceptions have taken place because people have not paid heed to these verses. Jesus says in verse 27, When he comes, it will be visible. It will be like lightning flashing, meaning that it will be sudden, it will be unexpected, and it will be universally visible. You don't know when lightning's coming. You see a dark sky, suddenly lightning flashes across the sky in an instant. In that same way, Jesus Christ will come again, suddenly, unexpectedly, and all will see it. Nobody will miss it. Then in this chapter, verses 30 to 31, Jesus talks about his coming a bit more. He says, at the time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. We don't actually know for sure what the sign of the Son of Man is, but I'm sure when we do see it, we will know what it is. It will be obvious and visible. It says this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus, in speaking these words, intentionally draws upon the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. When he talks about the Son of Man, he comes coming on the clouds of heaven. The one who approaches the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence. Jesus is deliberately evoking these words from Daniel, saying that when the Son of Man, he the Son of Man comes, this will be a great, wondrous, universally visible sign to the whole world that nobody will miss. So, the first hallmark of the last days is deception. 
The second thing that Jesus mentions is turmoil. Look at verses 6 to 8. Jesus lists various fearful things that will be going on in the world prior to his return. There will be wars and rumours of wars, reports of wars, nation against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group, kingdom against kingdom, states against other states, famines and earthquakes, and all kinds of catastrophes in the natural world and in human society. Of course, these things are nothing new. They've been going on ever since the Lord returned to heaven. And indeed, they've been going on since the earliest days of human history. Conflict has been part of life since Cain and Abel. And yet, the fact that Jesus refers to these things as the birth pains, or the beginnings of the birth pains, or the birth pangs in verse 8, seems to suggest that we can expect them to, to increase in in frequency, in severity, in the last days. Now, I can't prove that, but that's how birth pains work. They get more and more severe, more and more painful, more and more frequent, until suddenly the woman is ready to give birth. Dear friends, we may, we may, may indeed in our lifetimes see some very strange things happening in the world. We certainly hear about disasters and wars. We hear about them even today. There was an earthquake the other day in New Zealand. But I'm sure it's possible that in the last days we will see an increase in these things. But Jesus says, such things must come, but the end is still to come. See to it you are not alarmed. Just that in verse 6, doesn't he? See to it, you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So Christians, when we see these things happening, we should not lose our heads and think that the Christ, Christ has already come because the end is still to come. These things are the, the forerunners, the harbingers of his coming, not the actual event itself. And as I said just, just a minute ago, the Lord would not want us to be frightened or discouraged, but he would want to encourage us. He'd want to warn us, to comfort us, to not be scared, not to be fearful as the world is when we see these things taking place. Because he's warned us ahead of time. The next sign that Jesus mentions is persecution and apostasy. By apostasy I mean a falling away from faith amongst professing Christians. Jesus talks about this in verse 9. Let's start with persecution. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. and You'll be hated by all nations because of me. In Mark's account, Mark puts it this way. He says, all men will hate you because of me. The idea is the same. As wickedness, as lawlessness increases, as the darkness deepens, so hatred for Christ and for his church also increases. Persecution is nothing new. The, the, the apostles were persecuted. The early Christians were, were persecuted. But once again, persecution will, will be a feature of the, the gospel age of the last days. 
and perhaps increasingly so. In verse 22, Jesus says, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. This could be talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which was a terrible, terrible event. But if it is talking about something in the future, it could be that persecution of the church will be very, very severe, widespread. I think what Revelation would say seems to suggest that as well, that Christians will be brutally and universally persecuted by wicked men. If we take these verses to heart, even in an age of liberal democracy, human rights, supposed religious freedoms, Christians will not be always shielded from persecution. There will be no safe haven. There will be nowhere to escape to because Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me. He says, you know, all nations will hate you. There will not be any such thing as a Christian nation where Christians are protected. It doesn't literally mean every single person will hate us, but, you you know, generally speaking, the world will not receive Christians. The world does not understand Christians. The world does not love their Lord. The world hates them. The world hates us. In Luke's account, he says that even our own family members will betray us to death. Many Christians around the world today know exactly what that's like, to be betrayed by family members. What will make it even more difficult and painful is that some of this betrayal will come from people that claim to be Christians, that walked with us, that went to church with us, that sat around the Lord's table with us, perhaps, that prayed with us, that serve together with us. Jesus says in verse 10, at that time many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. I think this could be be translated, many will be offended, offended by the gospel, offended by Christ. They will turn away from the faith. They will betray Christ. They'll either completely turn their backs on him, renounce Christ completely or they'll embrace a false Christ and a false gospel and perhaps these deceivers and this deception. Jesus says elsewhere that that there will come a time when people who kill Christians think they're actually offering a service to God. That's how deceived they are. That's how wicked a man's heart can be that he kills a fellow human being and thinks he's actually offering a service to God. It's a very sad thing, isn't it, when you, you see a Christian person or a person that, that claimed to be a Christian that you, you had fellowship with, as it seemed, who gets embroiled in deception or sin or falling away from the faith. That's a very, very sad thing, a painful thing. I think it's one of the most painful things a Christian can experience to see that going on. But it's not to be unexpected. And Jesus says something else, which I've always found quite disturbing and shocking in verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness or lawlessness or iniquity, the love of most or the love of many will grow cold. In those last days, wickedness, darkness will increase. 
It will just proliferate and grow and spread. As God perhaps withdraws his restraining hand and allows people, gives them over to their wickedness. And even those within the visible church, the church that we can see, will be influenced by this. Not all of them, of course. The elect, those who truly belong to the Lord, will not be deceived. But many who claim to be his, who claim to belong to him, will be. Their love will grow cold. This is something we need to be careful of because it could happen to any of us if we were not vigilant, if we were not careful, we did not watch out for our souls. The process of falling away from Christ does not happen overnight. It starts with a creeping love of the world, love of the things of this world. It starts with allowing ourselves to listen to deception. It starts with allowing ourselves to become cold towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, to no longer read the word, to become lukewarm in prayer, or to become disheartened by the, the godly sorry, the godless ways of this world, to look at this wickedness, just become broken by it and to give up and to see no point in persevering or overcoming. Or even worse, to allow ourselves to be influenced, to become worldly, to become compromised and sinful and lukewarm. That is a real danger for people that profess to be Christians. What a terrible thing for our love for the Lord and for his people to grow cold. Perhaps you, you, you may well recognise that tendency in yourself. Perhaps, the, perhaps you've forsaken your first love. I know sometimes I, I certainly feel like that as a Christian. I don't have that fervour, that, that zeal, that intensity that I had when I was, I was a young Christian. One, <clears throat> one of the many biblical safeguards against this, this happening against our love growing cold, is to heed the the warning in Hebrews 10, verse 25, to not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Dear friends, the local church, fellowship with other Christians, is one of God's safeguards, one of the biblical safeguards against our love, growing cold. If you're not part of a church in any meaningful way, if you remain on the fringe, it's very likely that your love will grow cold. In fact, it's likely that your love has already grown cold and your lack of desire for fellowship is a symptom of that. But being part of a fellowship, it doesn't have to be a a small church, it could be a big church, but in a biblical church with people that know you and care about you and watch out for you and pray for you and love you, what a safeguard that is. It's an encouragement for your soul. It helps you not to be influenced by worldliness, the worldliness around you. And it keeps you red hot. And it keeps you fervent. And it keeps you zealous for the things of God. And it encourages you and protects you. Dear friends, this is a serious matter. Jesus says in verse 13, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The book of Revelation talks about this, about overcoming. He who overcomes. It's vitally important that you and I overcome, that we persevere, that we continue, that we endure, that we do not fall away, we do not grow cold 
We do not get deceived. If you are the kind of Christian that wants to have a casual, easy Christian life, to not take things too seriously, just to plod along, to not really bother, to not make much effort, let me submit to you that you are actually in great danger of losing your soul. Not that a true Christian can lose their salvation, but you're in danger of walking away from whatever kind of faith you may have professed. If that's you, you need to come back to the Lord in repentance and he'll forgive you and help you get back on track. You might be a very weak Christian. You might, may feel yourself to be a weak Christian. You say, I- I'm not up for this. I really don't want to hear about persecution and problems and turmoil. I just want to live my life quietly, peacefully. I don't have any, any confidence in myself that I'll be able to stand up in the face of persecution. I don't have any confidence in my ability to, to, to discern falsehood and deception in the church. I'm just a weak, broken Christian person. And dear friends, that is the reality about all of us. There aren't any such things as strong Christians. There may be more mature Christians, but we're all weak, needy. We all need to come to the Lord for grace and say, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm frightened at times. This is difficult. Please, would you strengthen me? Give me grace. Help me to be faithful. Help me to keep on trusting you. Help me not to lose hope. The Lord will keep us and protect us, no matter how weak we may feel we are, but we do need to make sure that we are walking with him. So that was, that was apostasy and persecution. One of the other hallmarks of the last days, and a much more positive one, is global evangelism. Evangelism meaning the spreading of the good news of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom, throughout the nations of the world. Look at verse 14. This gospel, this good news, this good message of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So although the nations will hate and persecute Christians, in God's sovereignty, in God's wisdom, in God's plan, the good news of the Lord Jesus will be spread across the nations of the world. I want you to read, if you have time, Luke 21, verses 12 to 13. This is Luke's account of the same discourse, the same, same uh, speech that Jesus made. And he talks about persecution and he talks about Christians being brought before rulers and kings on account of his name. But this would result in them being witnesses to them. A witness is somebody who proves something is true. Now, we read in the book of Acts about the apostles, the twelve. They were certainly brought before rulers and kings and they testified to the Lord Jesus. The Jewish rulers, the Roman rulers, the secular rulers. Surely it's also true today, isn't it, amongst Christians? Courage and steadfastness in the gospel is a powerful witness to those that don't believe it. It shows that this is real. It proves its validity. When you 
face opposition of any kind or persecution for the gospel, please don't lose heart. Don't become discouraged. It may be a very difficult trial that you have to face, but God is in this. And God is working out his purposes to glorify his son, to use you in some way. God may well be using that persecution as an opportunity for you to stand up and testify to your Lord that people might hear the gospel, people might be saved. Let us give thanks for the courage of our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world who face terrible trials and persecutions for the sake of Christ. Let us give thanks actually for the the modern technology that we have now, which makes it easy for, easier for communication to take place on a global scale so that the gospel might go out to all nations. People, people are engaged in this day, that people are still going to places where the gospel is not known, preaching the word of God, using whatever means at their disposal. Preaching, proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the coming of the king, calling people to repentance, translating Bibles, doing acts of mercy, and then telling people about Jesus, in whose name they do these kind acts. The gospel is going out. There are believers in every nation of the world, pretty much, if not every single nation. And you and I, dear friends, we play our part in this great commission. Every time that we witness to people about the Lord Jesus and speak to them of the hope that we have as Christians, we are playing our part in the evangelization, the evangelism of this world. So be encouraged. Now, you may wish now to have a break and pause this for five minutes, or you may wish to come back to this second part another day. But I do encourage you to listen to it with an open Bible and an open heart. I don't want anybody to become tired out listening and just give up listening. I want you to have a break if you need to. But let's deal with another part of this passage in a moment. So now we come to one of the more controversial and difficult parts of this chapter. And I'm going to try to tackle it as best I can. You may have different opinions. I'm not claiming to be 100% right about everything, but I'm, I'm doing my best to simply try to understand what the scripture may be saying and present to you the different options and you can make up your own mind. But I hope we don't lose the woods for the wood for the trees. I hope we don't lose the main points of what Jesus is teaching here. So in verses 15 to 22, or perhaps 25, we see Jesus talking about what appears to be the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the city and the temple in AD 70, 40 years after he spoke these words. I think a plain man, a normal person reading that would probably come to that conclusion. Jesus is answering the question, when will these things happen? Talking about the destruction of the temple. So in verse 15, he talks about this mysterious abomination that causes desolation. This is a reference to the book of Daniel. You can read it in Daniel 9, verse 27, Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verse 11. It's a direct reference to something that's mentioned in in the book of Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation. 
An abomination is something which is detestable, which is hateful, which is sacrilegious, which is blasphemous, which is opposed to the true worship of the living God. And in the book of Daniel, there's, there are references, prophetic references to a future ruler who would come and set up an image, a blasphemous, godless, idolatrous image in the temple of God, in the holy place. This prophecy seems to have had multiple fulfillments. The first was in around AD, um, sorry, BC 168, when a violent and blasphemous ruler came, he invaded Israel. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was an absolute tyrant. And he erected a pagan altar to the, the idol Zeus, Zeus in God's temple in Jerusalem. So most people would agree that was the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy that Daniel made about this abomination in the temple. But it is possible and likely that Jesus is also referring here to a similar event around the time of the the fall of Jerusalem. Well, he says in verse 34, a much debated verse, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Jesus is talking about a future event that's, that's about to take place. And in verses 16 to 20, he talks about fleeing the city, seeing trouble brewing and God's people who are there needing to flee into the mountains where they'll be safe from this massacre, this absolute holocaust that's coming against the people of the city where I think a million people were slaughtered. He says, you need to get out of that city. He gives practical instructions about what to do when you see these things taking place. And I think probably when he says this generation, he's talking about the people alive at this time would see the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So when that city was destroyed in AD 70, the Romans swept in. They absolutely pounded the temple to pieces. They smashed it. They destroyed it. They cast down the big stones. They took off all the gold. And they, in a sense, they desecrated that holy place. And it was gone, and it still hasn't been rebuilt to this day. In Luke 21, in his account of this, Jesus makes it very plain that he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He says, this is the time of retribution, this is the time of punishment, fulfillment of all that's been written. All the prophecies about God's judgment on his unfaithful people would come to their culmination, their highest point, or lowest point, if you like, when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. And they were looking towards that day when that would all come to pass. The cursing of the fig tree, the desolation of God's house. And and Luke also mentions Jesus talking about the, the scattering of the Jews to the nations. In Luke 21, verse 24. And even today, the Jewish people are still scattered all over the world, although remarkably, many of them have come back to the land where these things took place. 
In Luke's gospel, Jesus talks about when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. So I think it's clear he's answering the question, when will these things happen? However, I do think there may be, this is where I'm on controversial ground, but hear me out, there may be, just maybe, a future fulfilment of these prophecies as well. So it refers to the, the, the first destruction, the, the desecration of the temple, Antiochus Epiphanes. It talks about, it's talking about the, the, the fall of Jerusalem. But it could also be that in the future, there could be a similar desecration. Why do I say this? Well, I could be wrong. Look in verse 21. Jesus says, for then, talking about this, this event, there will be, a, be great distress, great tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So whilst the fall of Jerusalem was a terrible, tragic event, a catastrophe for the Jewish nation, a source of great distress, hard for us to understand how much weeping this would have caused, you have to ask the question, was it really the worst, the most horrific event in human history? Because Jesus says clearly that such a, such a thing, such a terrible thing will never happen again. It will be unequaled in the history of the world, from the beginning of the world, and never to be equaled again. Was the fall of Jerusalem really as bad as that? Well, I, from, in terms of bloodshed, it certainly wasn't. With all due respect, the, the, the Holocaust... In, in you know the 1930s and 40s, that killed far more people. It was far more brutal in many ways. And there have been other terrible events since then. So is this great tribulation still to come? Maybe not. Maybe the fall of Jerusalem was so painful for the Jews. Jesus uses Jewish symbolism and language to depict the this awful tragedy, but it could be, it just could be that something far worse is still to come. In Daniel 12, verse 1, there's also talk of a time of unequaled, unparalleled, great distress and tribulation. But in Daniel, we have to be careful with the chronology of this, the time scale of this. We don't know. This is prophecy. That great time of tribulation appears to be connected with the salvation of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and also the final resurrection when the good and the evil are judged. They rise up, some to be judged and some to be saved. Jesus seems to be alluding to this in, in verse 31 of Matthew 24 when he talks about the elect, God's chosen people being gathered from the four winds. He's talking about the resurrection of believers. So the point I'm making is that in Daniel, this time of great tribulation, if it's the same time, it's connected, it seems to be, with the end of all things. And as we know, the fall of Jerusalem, although it was a mini apocalypse, it wasn't the actual end of all things. Another indication that this could possibly have some future significance is the Lord's reference to false prophets and false Christs in verses 23 to 24. I mean, there probably were, and there certainly were, false Christs around at the time of Jesus, at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, but they were limited in their scope and power, it seems. 
But in the book of Revelation, we seem to, if we understand it correctly, that there will be a time when there will be this universal deception of people. I mentioned it already, this beast will be completely overwhelming, powerful, mighty miracles, false miracles, and will deceive the whole world. So when Jesus talks about these false prophets, is he talking about people that were just alive at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, or is he looking forward to a greater deception in the future? And then there's this whole, whole thing about the, the, the abomination that causes desolation in the temple. Revelation chapter 13, verse 14, the beast out of the earth orders the inhabitants of the earth to set up an image in honor of the first beasts, the one that was wounded and yet lived. He also causes them to worship it. All the inhabitants of the earth worship this image. It has supernatural power. It speaks. They idolize it. And those who don't idolize it, the true believers, are killed. Is it possible that in the last days some kind of blasphemous image will be set up again? Maybe not. I can't be sure, but I can't say it's impossible. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, Paul says something very interesting. He warns of a man of lawlessness, a man of iniquity, a ruler who will come, a powerful man, a deceiver, who opposes everything that is called God or that is worshipped. He even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Isn't that very similar imagery to this idea of something blasphemous being set up in the temple? Except this time it's not just an image, it's a person. It's a ruler who sets himself up and claims to be God with the power and the authority of God, but actually deceives the people of the world. Could it be that one day in Jerusalem there will be a rebuilt temple? And in that temple, to that temple will come a wicked ruler who will force all the peoples of the world to worship him, except those who know their God, refuse to bow the knee to him. Or could it be that the temple is not a literal one in Thessalonians, that it's simply referring to the whole world, the place, you know, God's footstool, the place where God dwells? the place where God is to be worshipped, the place where where God and his Christ are to be honoured, and yet a blasphemous, ungodly system sets itself up, Babylon, against God in defiance of him and deceives people. All this will be destroyed. This man, whatever, will be destroyed at the judgment when Christ comes. We just have to be aware and be careful. We can't discount any of these possibilities. We just have to be vigilant, aware and alert and prayerful and watchful and hopeful. Another thing which makes me think this possibly could have a future fulfilment as well as a past fulfilment is what Jesus says in verse 29 Immediately after the distress of those days, he talks about great cosmic signs, quoting from the book of Isaiah. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. 
The word immediately suggests that this, all these cosmic signs take place after the tribulation, after the abomination. Now, there are no reliable historical sources which tell us that at the, at the time of the siege of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, there were cosmic signs in the sky. There are kind of rumours, Josephus says things, but there's no, there's no sign, there's no indication this was a global um, phenomenon that people could see. It is true that Jewish apocalyptic prophetic literature does use imagery. The Old Testament, even the book of Isaiah, uses this kind of imagery of the, 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 cosm- the, you know, the heavenly bodies being shaken as a picture of the upheaval of judgment, the terror of judgment. It could be that Jesus is talking symbolically. We cannot exactly expect to see any signs in the sky. It's metaphorical, it's allegorical, it's symbolic. But in Luke 21, verses 25 to 26, the parallel account, Jesus does say there will be signs in the sun, moon and stars and men will faint with terror for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And for a plain man reading that, that sounds awfully like there will actually be cosmic upheaval. I don't know, meteors or strange and wondrous things. I can't be sure. None of us can be sure. But as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet in history. That is still to come. And that suggests to me that before these things happen, before the end comes, there will still be things that have to be fulfilled. Look, we need to be careful. We don't get carried away. We just need to be aware of the different possibilities and not discount them. Let's conclude by saying this. In verse 36, which we'll look at next week, Jesus makes it very clear that no, nobody except the Father in heaven knows the exact time when the Lord Jesus will come. They don't know the time or the hour. If anyone tells you they do, they're sorely mistaken. Jesus doesn't say that you should not be concerned about these things or should not think about these things. In verses 32 to 35, he talks about the fig tree. He says, go and learn a lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. You can rely on a tree to produce leaves in season. In the spring, leaves come and you know that the summer is near. Jesus says, just look at these signs, possibly talking about the fall of Jerusalem, almost certainly talking about his coming as well, his second coming. Look at the signs. You don't know the exact time, but you do know the season. Be prepared when you see these things taking place. Dear friends, none of us knows what the days and months and years possibly ahead may bring don't get carried away with signs don't get fixated but prophecy is in the bible for a reason and if if i have been wrong about any of this may may the lord forgive me may the lord teach me and there are good brothers and sisters who have different opinions about this that's absolutely fine but the main point is this the lord jesus is coming back the church needs to be ready the church needs to be about his business The church needs to be watchful, prayerful, alert, faithful. 
When we see these things happen, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So whatever happens, don't be alarmed. This world is not our home. We are citizens of of heaven. That's where we're heading for. The Lord is coming back for us. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We're going to sing our final song today, which is a new one, which is called Faithful God. Pray you, you enjoy singing this, and then we'll close our service for this evening. May the Lord bless you all. Faithful God.